Hello and welcome everybody to part 3 of the FPL 21-22 season review. This part details the aggressive strategies employed by myself and many others during the double game week part of the season. Due to the blank game weeks mentioned in part 2, there were a lot of aggressive strategies employed by most of the active community and some of them paid off in spades rather fortuitously. Some of them basically fell by the wayside. So this basically breaks down all the puns that I have made, whether expensive or not, whether successful or not, hopefully providing some lessons in the process. Now, firstly, across the season, it was no surprise that a lot of popular picks were based around teams that had double game weeks. Now, What's interesting about game weeks 21 to 27 in particular is that the double game weeks did not involve chip strategies. So they were dropping in as and when, and the announcements were relatively last minute. So it was very difficult to predict a blank game week, let alone a double game week for any particular team. In that sense, everybody played a reactionary game to based on how many teams had double game weeks. And a lot of players that were picked up really depended on their fixture schedule rather than the number of games they had left. So unlike previous seasons where we looked at a list of players and we went, oh, you know what? Certain players have four double game weeks left or three double game weeks left. We would look at the immediate schedule and go, oh, hold on. This guy has two games. And this was where we fell foul to the traps such as Emmanuel Dennis, who had a game against Norwich and Burnley, I believe. So, nevertheless, strategies that involved aggressive plays for the likes of Bruno Fernandes in game weeks 22 as well as 25 eventually paid off. And I was basically one of these fortunate managers who picked him up right before double game week 22 itself. Now, what's important to understand is that these hits for these premium players were not in isolation. There were a lot of recommended hits for the likes of Spurs, for the likes of Arsenal, for the likes of Man United, for the likes of Liverpool later on in 26 and 27 when their, blank, when their only blank was rescheduled. So it's understandable if there were aggressive hits made for premium players. Now, the important thing here is that you do not make early aggressive moves because there were moments where Spurs had a double game week, Everton had a double game week, and if you made your transfers too early, you would find out that close to the deadline, there were rumours of another COVID outbreak and some of these Double game weeks basically turned into single game weeks just after the deadline. This happened to many of a player, especially Spurs, when they had Burnley and Leicester. So what happened was Spurs game basically got postponed against Burnley, but they recovered in time for a 96-minute winner from Steven Bergvine where Kane got the assist. So Again, um, I would gratefully admit that I was, I was fortunate in certain circumstances, but what's important to understand, to, to remember here, is that the likes of Kane and Son and Bruno Fernandes, these players, right, they 
provide returns somehow, some way. And even if the circumstances dictate that they got it fortuitously, right? People think of how Emmy Martinez spilled his shot during game week 22. He did create various other opportunities for himself, for his teammates during the season itself, especially in the absence of Ronaldo for Bruno Fernandes' case. So this is me touching on the premium players. In the next section, I will talk about those who are not. Okay, so unlike Son, Kane and Bruno Fernandes, there were also plenty of hits taken for the likes of Leandro Trossard from Brighton, as well as various other relegation-threatened teams who had to rely on their double game week's chances to survive. So, plenty of names come to mind, especially in the forward line when it comes to replacements. Amanda Broya had a double game week at some point. Manuel Dennis was a very popular name thrown around. Vote Veghorst, a January signing for Burnley, also made his appearance. And a lot of people targeted his double game week for immediate returns, especially since he scored 14 points against Brighton in the 3-0 game right before that double game week as well. And the big lesson here really is that you cannot rely on sub-6 million strikers for double game week returns specifically. They have to be kept over a long run of games, probably covering multiple double game weeks. And this pattern will appear much more prominently later, especially when um, Everton is in a conversation. But I will save that for part four. In part three itself, the template revolved around the concept of the tip of the spear because more often than not in FPL when we deal with teams outside the top six we always pick the star player in a generally bad team now this is not to say that we do this all the time this is more speaking of the mentality of the conventional player and what is important to understand is that we have to take advantage of how indecisive we are as managers. Because during a double game week period, if you have to purchase a premium player and you're not selling a premium player, more often than not, you're making two transfers at once and taking minus fours. So you are essentially swapping an expensive player as well as a cheap player for another expensive player and another cheap player. And people always look at the expensive player for returns. And, you know, if you're trading an expensive player that has a blank for someone that has two fixtures, the returns are relatively reliable. But the cheap players that you lose also should be considered into the equation. So if you're selling the likes of Emmanuel Dennis, who has a double game week in the horizon, there were a lot of managers that were punished, especially when he scored after he was sold. But I think we can't be sore about those opportunity costs. More important is that there were periods where the likes of Ollie Watkins did not have a good double game week, but he scored in the single game weeks. And this is important, especially towards the latter half of the season where teams built momentum based on where they were, based on new signings, based on the January transfer window, 
based on new managers. So two teams that built their momentum in the third part of the season here were Aston Villa and Newcastle, notably Newcastle, because their goals, the source of their goals were not consistent prior to this. And I will talk about this in the next section, specifically Newcastle and Aston Villa. But for now, what we understand is that in general, teams outside the top six are not worth chasing unless you hold them for the medium term. In this section, I touch on teams that gain momentum in the second half of the season, mainly touching on teams that were relegation-threatened and they gain enough momentum to steer themselves away. So there were several candidates, you know, from the likes of Southampton, Everton and such that already had player quality to the likes of relatively unknown sides such as Aston Villa and Newcastle. So here, when we look at Aston Villa and Newcastle, particularly on a microscope for FPL returns, what's important to understand is that in most cases, they had to vary between their plan A that they adopted from their previous sites into a plan B that eventually worked. That transition is absolutely vital if we want to capitalize in terms of FPL. In Aston Villa's case, their plan A initially revolved around their fullbacks because that was Steven Gerrard's philosophy coming in from Rangers. But when that plan A failed, he basically revolved his side around the, you know, the player with the best quality, which was Philip Coutinho, by having two strikers in front of him, by allowing Coutinho as much space as possible, and most importantly, introducing a late substitute in the form of Emiliano Buendia, who enabled Coutinho's ball-playing abilities even further. Now, for Newcastle's case, Eddie Howe also attempted to attack recklessly using the default squad available. And when that didn't work, especially with the injuries of certain central midfielders, he pushed Joel Linton back into central midfield while attempting to experiment with forwards such as Miguel Amiron and Bruno Guimaraes, who eventually became a an unstoppable force in midfield itself. So the question comes down to how do we see these transitions? How do we find out when is the right time to jump on these sorts of bandwagons? The results won't show it. And unfortunately, we have to revert to the eye test because that's how we notice these changes. We cannot assume that injured players will be replaced plug and play. And we have to give credit to ITKs especially that notice these changes and are willing to take advantage of it. It is in this period where 5.0 midfielders and 5.5 midfielders shine because of double game weeks. And it's important to understand that this is regardless of fixture. At this stage, when you recognize a team has momentum, you can throw a fixture out the window unless they play Man City or Liverpool. Because when you have that momentum, anything you do basically will get you to score regardless of circumstance. A very vivid example was Bruno Guimaraes' 96-minute winner against Leicester City because even though his output revolved around the fact that he burst forward from midfield, you just have that extra motivation to push forward 
to search for a winner despite having lack of motivation in terms of results. Because at that point, Newcastle were basically mid-table, safe, and sufficiently far away from 18th place. So even at that stage, in the final stages of the game, when it was 1-1 against Leicester City, who were chasing a European spot themselves, Bruno Guimaraes broke forward from defensive midfield to basically score a VAR delayed winner in the death at the death. So, on to the conclusion. Big lessons learned from part three of the season, especially when double game weeks are concerned. Number one. Take hits for premium players. They are almost certainly worth it, especially if you're selling a premium player that is injured or likely to have a blank. Chip strategy can definitely revolve around this. Um, Late in the season, we saw the likes of Salah being triple captain by the masses against Norwich and Leeds. And despite the minutes risk, he did come up with 84 points after captaincy. Secondly, puns on mid-table sides probably require momentum because there is a very big difference sticking with Leandro Trossard for three weeks with Brighton doing absolutely nothing compared to having a Ryan Fraser or Bruno Guimaraes that return game after game despite quality opposition. Lastly, it's important that this stage leads up to predictable blank game weeks such as clashes between FA Cup and Premier League games which we will talk about in part 4. So that's all for now. On to the concluding part of this series.